0: Hello, Juno. How's it going? Hi. Very, very good. Yeah, feeling good. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad that we're both in sort of
2: blanket pillow forts of a kind. Yeah, I wanted to do a really good professional job at, of this podcast. This is, I was very excited for this appearance. So I decided to construct a blanket <laughs> fort in my bedroom so that we could have optimum acoustics so i I hope it sounds good i so appreciate that
0: you built a little studio (laughs) that is great i'm sort of doing the opposite which is you know taking advantage of the fact that everybody understands that like the whole world is doing diy av setups which is like Mm -hmm. my usual resting place anyway so i'm like (laughs) "Eh, if the sound is like like I have the window open and if you hear the sounds outside I'm like whatever we're in a it global adds to the crisis. The yeah, it exactly yeah. exactly. It adds to the text. This texture. is the
2: approach I'm taking to um trying to flog homemade porn on the internet right now during the crisis. It's like any any little bits of detritus, anything that's in the shot that isn't supposed to be there i'm hoping it just adds garnish yes you know it's just like oh a little a sprinkling of reality you know like that that's that's an extra and you're getting it for free yes i know finding out what my real life a little
0: like a like a nice like extra spread of authenticity like on top of everything else Mm, yeah people should be goddamn grateful for that Mm. totally <laughs> well, let me introduce you. I I do want to say that the bio that you sent me was sort of in little pieces, and as we were just talking about, is sort of like a combination of like being British and being a sex worker. That you were like yeah, apologizing for yeah. telling me about your bona fides as you were telling me about <laughs> your bona fides for
2: me to read. It just it just doesn't come easy to me. I I like I hope that like a lot of of your listeners are American. I hope it just doesn't sound like false modesty, but I've never felt okay about bios. It's just, it's just a tricky one. But I admit that the whole point of listening to a podcast is that you know enough to be interested about who you're speaking to. So I concede that the bio is necessary.
0: (laughs) Well, I also, I think that the the bio is a great chance for people to know right off the bat where they can hear more from you as they listen to you they can be like well i'm already sad that this is going to be over soon but i know that i have like more material to tap into (laughs) after this is wrapped so uh, let me read your bio i am going to include this lovely sentence which is that you said to me please say that i'm a professional leg spreader and opinion haver so true (laughs) so true put it on your cv
2: that's just it. That's the line. That's, that's the tweet.
0: That's it. That's the t- yes, yeah, send tweet. Juno Mack is a sex worker, activist, author, and photographer based in London, UK. She's an organizer with Sex Workers Advocacy and Resistance Movement, or SWARM, a collection of sex workers based in different cities around the United Kingdom. She's one of the co-authors with Molly Smith of the book Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights, released in 2018, and is currently working on a part documentary, part memoir photographic project about the intimate spaces in sex working lives. And furthermore, you may have seen her amazing TED talk that I love and sometimes will like watch just to like pump myself up you know it's like putting on like a great like Donna Summer track you know to like get ready for the party it's like I just like need to watch (laughs) Juno's TED talk oh my god, that's great and if you haven't already seen it it is essential watching it's called the laws that sex workers really want yeah so I mean I think that because of all the writing and media making that you do, and in particular because you just made this indispensable book, Revolting Prostitutes, I think that we're going to kind of do what I call an bang episode where we just kind of like wander around in the topics of literature and politics and sex work and sexuality that you and I both really love to talk about and just based on the google doc that we've come up with have um a lot to say about does that feel good to you oh yeah
2: yeah that sounds
0: great awesome um so let's start here i asked you if anything was off limits and you brought up the fact that there's something that you're excited to talk about here that you don't feel that you can talk about elsewhere which is actually what i tell all my guests that I hope that they'll do. And you said that you generally ask not to be asked questions that focus on your personal experiences with sex work or like your personal sex life. Can you say, first of all, can you say why you generally ask not to be asked that? And then talk about why you do want to divulge all of that here today (laughs) it's
2: an exclusive yes wait well when you said to me you know let me know in advance if there's things you don't want to talk about i very nearly just from sheer habit started to write down you know please don't ask about my personal experiences with sex work i'm very much of the same opinion as melissa gira grant that that kind of conversation is just not necessary to understand the book we've written and you know, most of the time when talking to media is, it threatens to be a big distraction really from the topic at hand. That's right. And I guess that's kind of been how my co-author and I have approached it so often that I, and I haven't, I don't think I've necessarily been interviewed by anybody who's kind of from within the family, you know, like sex worker led media. We haven't done that much of it. And so it was only on this occasion that I was like, hang on a minute, like, why do I ask that people don't go there? Mm. Like, what's at, what is at stake? And it kind of got me thinking about how, you know, the reason I, we, we ask people not to go there is kind of unfair. It kind of means that we have to, because we're advocates, we've chosen to kind of like almost amputate a, a certain part of our reality because it's, mm. it's so often a, like distracting, it's weaponized against us. Mm. And for me, I think since the book came out, I've experienced quite a significant amount, of, like a crisis of confidence almost, that somebody would discover my sex work mm. persona. Somebody would like discover sexualized images of me on the internet and use it to like undermine the work we've done. Which when you think about it, it's kind of it's kind of wild because kind of what we're all about as advocates is that sex workers should be taken seriously when they yeah. participate in political speech. And just because the two of us are sex workers, it doesn't un- it doesn't undermine the message we're trying to put across. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think me and Molly, we both relentlessly guard our privacy in that regard. And I don't know. I don't want to get I don't want to get too frozen into that habit because I think there's nothing in my history as a sex worker that makes what I'm saying in the book, what we're saying in the book, any less meaningful. And I stand by everything we've said, regardless of what people have found out about, you know, what my asshole looks like on the internet or whatever you know
0: I mean that's something that I relate to so intensely because I use the same you know I've chosen over the years to use the same name that I made for myself to do sex work under as a pen name and stage name and it has now kind of become my professional name so in some ways that feels like a skin suit that I can peel off when I'm not performing and I'm not like amplifying or projecting anything. And then I feel like there's something like safe and separate that I have when I've taken off the like armor or the Iron Man suit or whatever.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. Mm. But then
0: sometimes I feel more exposed because of the skin suit (laughs) when I'm talking to like an editor or a producer and I know that they can google the other things that my skin suit has done that is on the internet like the asshole of the skin suit right (laughs) and um (laughs) and and i and and just like you were saying like i don't mind that people see the skin suit in action or see my butthole And, and, and you know i'm not ashamed of it in fact i'm very proud of that work but i also just pragmatically know that like you said it can be a distraction and realistically it, it it can undermine my legitimacy in in other people's eyes and then i feel guilt yeah. for like causing myself a setback but then I also feel like, hey, yeah. maybe I can use the privilege that I do have to advance the idea that you can be a skin suit with a brain, and that also you can have like a whole personal life that is nobody's business, and that that's actually true for all women and all people and all artists and all advocates yeah. and public figures. So it's it's a big
2: it's a big mess. This is all super relatable. Like I think I think a lot of sex workers who uh, do any kind of public political speech could relate to this feeling of yeah. you have to think about having multiple identities which is in itself a tax on your energy totally. to wear different hats different skin suits and to have different things like you're compartmentalizing different parts of yourself that are like but you know different they're shameful in different contexts you know I have there's contexts where I'm speaking as Juno Mac in very like dry grown-up legislative spaces Mm. where i might be talking to politicians or you know people in academia and it feels like i have to be a completely different person divorce from that my history of sex work my history of sex positive stuff i try and keep out of my activism for various reasons which i'm sure we'll get on to yeah but like that doesn't mean i'm not a sex positive person it doesn't mean i'm not a queer kinky person polyamorous and you know in other ways i embody a whole different stereotype mm. um you know <laughs> this cringy embarrassing poly kinky stereotype and it just frustrates me that because other people mm. will misinterpret or like uh you know weaponize mm. those aspects of my identity or because they can't be understood in harmony together i have to go mm. through the labor of keeping them separate it's just it's such hard work it is hard work again with the sort of
0: like messiness of it like sometimes it feels like well truthfully like everyone has different personas that they have Hmm. in if they have had different jobs throughout their life if you've like worked In a restaurant, you have a persona there. If you've worked in an office, you have a persona there. If you, the way that you act when you're, you know, with certain parts of your family versus other parts of your family versus when you're with your friends versus when you're with like this sexual partner or that sexual partner or like who you are when you're walking down the street. And this is like a social human reality. So, in a way, the fact that sex workers and certain other creative folks have like given a name to these different personas in a way can sometimes feel like a relief where i can compartmentalize and be like this is in the Tina Horn box and mm. that is like very very clear i'm like naming and identifying something that is true for everyone and like maybe that's yeah. actually something like useful that other people could learn from like especially with
2: social media yeah i think i think Like social media, definitely. I mean, everybody out there knows the feeling of having to have like a public account and a private account, maybe to keep the content away from your family. Right. But I think with sex work or being in any kind of marginalized group, the stakes are raised so high as to whether or not people are going to find the wrong information about you. Like I worry all the time that you know, a prominent anti-prostitution feminist will find my sex work profile. And I worry all the time that some of my clients will find my activism work and or or read the book and find, find it distasteful. Yeah, like that their feelings will get hurt and they won't book me again. And those are just two of the identities that I grapple with. I also for a long time was wondering about an audience for my photography. Should I be like, you know, should I publish my photography under this name or that name? Right. Or should I ke- make a third persona just for the kink scene? Just to talk about sex. And like, by that time, my head is spinning. Oh, my God. Like, I so relate to that. Insane. Like, oh, yes, I'll make another name. That will simplify things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's like it's like in the Har- I hate I I, I am loath to use a Harry Potter analogy because obviously that's not cute. And it's very, very um uncool these days. But you know how like. Voldemort stores little pieces of his soul in like different objects. And eventually he just dies cause you know, they get kind of, he, he becomes too diffuse and everything's like separated. Sometimes I feel like every time I make a new name or a new persona with a new handle on the internet, I'm just losing track more and more of who I really want to be. Uh, I kind of long just to have one skin suit. Like maybe I could live inside the Tina Horn skin suit. Please, there's plenty of it- room in here for everyone. <laughs> It's, and besides, what we're all ashamed of is surely the same, the, the figurative butthole that we're all ashamed of is is really the same thing. And, like, after writing a whole chapter about it in Revolting Prostitutes, yeah. the, chapter, the chapter that's about sex shame, yeah. it kind of makes me laugh that here I am still kind of, tr- like, tracing out my boundaries with journalists. Like, please don't ask me about sex. It's like, if they've read the book, they already should have had those conversations with themselves, but... Uh, I don't know. There's still some work to be done. I'm not going to flatter myself to think that we wrote a book and this the you know the entirety of sexual shame as far as it impacts sex workers is completely fixed. You know, I do know. I mean, that would be great. But. I, I mean,
0: it would be great. This thing that we're grappling with of like you know, not being good enough and like trying to like put our money where our mouth is in terms of talking about how we shouldn't be ashamed of these things, but then like feeling that shame, you know, really that is just another trap that is like one of the most basic traps that we talk about in the sex worker rights movement is like the minute that you start talking about things being okay, you have to go all the way to this fantasy extreme of... It all being about empowerment, it all being about being a happy hooker and not like you Mm. can't be a complex person who and the, the idea that you can't talk about
2: shame without conquering it. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so true. I was even just thinking to myself, I was like oh, is this like an unusual way to to begin this podcast? You know, like introducing Juno Mack, who clearly has a load of neuroses about whether or not she can be an integrated... Like, is it okay for Juno Mack to be an anxious hooker and an advocate for sex worker rights? Like, <laughs> But actually, like, maybe that is what I'm all about at the moment. Like, after the book, mm. especially now during the crisis, I'm just kind of sitting sitting with the mess yeah. of wondering, like, you know, am I am I still allowed to be kind of a messy, complicated person with a really complicated relationship to sex work. I have a thousand different opinions about the work I do and the sex industry in general. And it I I don't want anyone to mistake the coherence of the book for the inside of my head looks nothing like that. And that's why the book took so long to come into existence, because both Molly and I were just grappling for ages with how to kind of manifest the mess into something readable that was clear but it doesn't really scratch the surface as far as my own inner world how I feel about sex work how I feel about my own sex work and trauma body identities sex in general like thank god I don't actually have to write a book about all that stuff
0: (laughs) I mean you could but it is true that revolting prostitutes is very cohesive And very incisive. And like I was saying about your TED talk, I found reading Revolting Prostitutes really soothing. I honestly read it very slowly because I would like read like a page or two before bed, and it was like, a cup of chamomile tea or something where it was like it was so there was so much sophistication of intellectual discourse and political discourse and personal experience and this and the sort of like um the emotional heat of having been a part of movements and having been a part of these conversations online and in person for for so long and then to have them like Condensed into these like ironclad sentences was like so <laughs> soothing, and then I would also like it, like it's both like a cup of chamomile tea at night, and then like a cup of coffee in the morning, because then I would like wake up and like read <sighs> the next section in the morning and feel like
2: very galvanized. I have to say, I would love to go back in time and say to my co-author while we were writing the book. Don't worry, like I know that we both feel like a couple of like garbage rats <laughs> right now. We haven't got out of our pajamas for 3 days. We're both very stressed about everything. So one day somebody is going to be describing our book as a chamomile tea. <laughs> like it's do <it's, laughs> the thought. It's really nice. It's I'm nice. Glad. To hear that. It's not the experience we know No, of course it, not. But it's totally nice that that's of how Of course not. Out. I mean, that's appropriate.
0: <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I, I was reading it and rereading it a lot while I was working on my comic book, Safe Sex. And, like, the thing that is great about, about writing fiction that has a lot of the same themes of the, you know, the non-fiction work that I do and also the, like, non-fiction reality of my life... <laughs> is that <laughs> like with fiction you there is sort of more room to to have the human element that you were just describing of like the anxiety and the messiness like it can be like a portrait of ambivalence and in fact those things like build tension and create like realistic characters because that's how humans actually yeah. even in a mm. science fiction story it really helped to have these sort of really well articulated principles to then it's, so it's sort of like it came from like what you were talking about like this garbage rat messiness and then became this like clear cup of tea and then like also could inspire more messiness on the other side and in fact there is a line from the book the way a whore fights the power is of value to everyone that actually made the epigraph of the first collection of the first seven
2: issues of safe sex no way i love that that's great but i i love to hear it's really nice to hear people describe the book as something that feels like it cuts through some of the mess for them because i think as sex workers we have to deal with such it's such a messy discourse and we have to carry around the internal mess, which is what we were just talking about. Like there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of inner conflict. And then that shame and inner conflict is actually projected out into the debate. And that's because everyone on all sides of the debate is carrying around that, that the same shame, you know, ball and chain, you know, anti-prostitution feminists are also struggling with like shame and trauma and stuff. And sometimes there's just so much mess. We really just wanted to create, Something that felt a little bit more crystallized, you know yes. it was but it was very it was very hard to kind of sometimes it felt like we were trying to carve carve something out of marble and it just took so long to take shape, and we nearly lost our minds in the in the process. This is why I say i don't think that the finished. The book is how we it is how we wanted it to come out, and we we're really proud of it. But it doesn't really scratch the surface as far as everything we cut out of the book. I mean, the things that we cut out of the book could make another three books. Yeah, stuff that we stuff that we decided was just too snarky, um, too <laughs> too bitchy, mm. uh, too petty. There was a lot of petty bullshit that we had to axe, and it was almost just like writing it in the first place was the catharsis that we needed, and then. Yeah. Once it was all down on paper, we decided, okay, that's fine. We've had our therapy. We take it out. We're trying, to make, we're trying to make a more dialectically progressive document. It doesn't need to contain every single receipt of every single disgusting thing that's ever been said to a sex worker. Which for a while, it looked like that's what it was going to become, like a compendium of horror. You know, like a, whole cha- a whole chapter on horrific internet beef. Um I'm glad that we ended up getting rid of that stuff cuz I just don't think it would have really helped move the conversation forward. Yeah. And you have to know who you're trying to who you're trying to reach sometimes with certain kinds of work. Like I don't imagine that the book is being picked up and read in great numbers by really vehement anti-prostitution feminists. I just don't think that that's happening. It sh- um, it but should I do be. hope. Uh, yeah. I I wish it would, but I and I'm sure like one or two of them might have read it, but they're not really mentioning it then they're not really speaking back to it but I know that the important thing is, important thing is that a lot of a lot of people who are kind of neutral on the fence or perhaps fond of some really like unhelpful argument tactics yeah. are reading it yes I think um, that's or true people who just haven't made up their mind and those are the people who actually have the power to go out and do real good for sex workers like totally agree so those are those are the audience I really wanted we we both really wanted to reach hell yes amazing
0: Well, because you said that you don't often get a chance to actually talk about sex work and you included some of your more sex work specific bona fides in (laughs) in our Google Doc, I'm wondering if I can ask you the question, what do you consider your orientation? Like what is is the, the form of sex work that you feel like is the form of sex work you were born to do.
2: Firstly, I love orientation and I can't understand for the life of me why I've never heard that word before, <laughs> given how fond I am of words like whorecrux yes. uh, and and such like orientation. I don't know. I feel like I'm a hooker at heart. I've been like full service sex work what I've been doing for the longest. Yeah. And I have dabbled in most stuff. Like I had one ill-fated summer as a stripper I quickly devolved into doing full service in the club. So (laughs) (laughs) then I did brothel work for a few years. I've done pro-subbing and pro-doming, but always with full service Mm. attached. This is uh, right now during the coronavirus crisis is the longest I've done without doing full service sex work. And I'm not going to say I miss it, but I certainly prefer it to online content stuff which i'm struggling with a little bit to be honest can you talk about
0: that more because i i feel similarly that i really struggle with doing sex work mediated by devices and the internet and prefer to be in the room with people but i know that some people feel the opposite and so i I, i'm curious if
2: you could say more about that well i i feel like everything is harder work over like on devices doing things on skype and zoom places like this extra tax on my brain like my my ability to kind of detect people's emotions and mirror their body language or like detect what it is they need to be happier in that moment i've always felt is like it's kind of where my skill set is you know trying to yeah. Figure, figure out how to create a mood i think it's like probably a response to growing up in a difficult home it's always been something i'm very good at you know like mm. keep the mood nice and <laughs> yes that, that's that's definitely why i've ended up in sex work because i think it's a it's a job where that skill really enhances your ability to survive like if you can make people happy it doesn't just have to be through sex but if you can just you know really curate the mood then people will come away feeling like, oh, that was, you know, that was good. I feel better, but I I can't <laughs> put my finger on why. Right. And I just, I think doing, doing that work online feels impossible. Mm. Like I, I'm, I'm struggling very much to charm, like my usual levels of charm with my clients just feel completely like I'm, yeah, I, like I've lost, it's like an episode of Buffy where Buffy's really like weak and can't open a jar of pickles like yes, i've tried yes. talking to some of my clients on the phone and i'm just like how do i do how do i dominate people i don't i don't understand anymore like it doesn't work
0: oh my god so. i relate to that on so many levels especially the buffy comparison uh, <laughs> level i yeah <laughs>
2: yeah i feel you yeah so i'm looking forward to being able to i'm not the world's most enthusiastic worker <laughs> you know like i'm, defi- I'm definitely. Uh, skeptical about the nature of work in general but like if I have to pick a form of work I I want to get back to doing full service when I can not least because it, it is it's less time consuming for me like it's another reason I think I'm in sex work in the first place is just like I really value time spent not working although it's I, I say this all the time it's ironic that sex workers often Uh, they get into the work because they want to have more free time and then they spend all of their free time trying to grapple with the demands for better labor conditions in the sex industry. It's like the only job that could support the amount of time I've spent arguing for sex worker rights is being a prostitute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Also relate to that really hard. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) And you know, on, on the note of what it means to spend the time that you might think of as your free time talking about sex worker rights. One of the questions that I want to ask you is to give us some dinner party cannon fodder to mix metaphors. Mm. If you are at a dinner party and or dinner table and the topic of decriminalizing sex work comes up, what are your strategies? What are your approaches? What can you give to Our listeners to help them to navigate those conversations, whether they are themselves a sex worker and want to defend our rights or explain (laughs) our rights on the basis of personal experience, or whether people listening want to learn how to be
2: better allies. Yeah. I mean, like, firstly, like, who, what kind of people are your listeners mostly, do you think? I'm curious.
0: That's a great question. I mean, I definitely hear a lot from folks from our communities. You know, I mean, the communities that you have already identified that we share, whether they're sex workers, porn makers, kinky folks, leather folks, Hmm. poly folks, sluts. But but then, I, I mean, I also hear from people who who love those people even if they don't like identify as one of us Mm -hmm. or who are curious or want to learn more or want to be allies and then there's like all the people that I don't hear from I mean I imagine people who are curious or voyeuristic in like all kinds of ways for all kinds of reasons yeah this is
2: kind of what I imagine, though like I think I think if you find yourself at a dinner party And I don't generally find myself (laughs) at dinner parties, (laughs) probably because I, yeah, it's difficult. I think it's difficult to have a dinner party if you're like mostly a group of norm, norm core people and you invite like the loud mouth hooker (laughs) who likes to argue the toss about legislative things. Mm. I think partly the reason we wrote the book was for this imaginary dinner party scenario almost because i think yeah sex work is a really intimidating topic to wade into mm. if there's going to be any kind of disagreement because the crux of the disagreement rests on something that not really many people can claim they understand right it's you know it's a legislative argument and a lot of people kind of they pick up the topic because it feels like oh it's about sex i understand sex i have a strong opinion about sex so like you know women's bodies or like women's right to choose these these feel accessible mm. and but then but before you realize it you're actually up to your armpits in a very treacherous ocean mm. of talk about laws and jurisdictions and i think It's easy even now after doing as much research as we did for the book, I still find it very easy to get out of my depth. And I think people should know when they're out of their depth and not try too hard to have to sort of like finish or complete an argument when they're actually talking out of their butt. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very easy to do that. Even sex workers, sometimes especially sex workers, are having arguments in various contexts about which laws are best for sex work. And unfortunately, it's not something that you can just win because you've got a really strong emotional feeling about it. You know, there's actually actually evidence-based arguments to be made. Mm. It's a really complicated topic. And we wanted to write revolting prostitutes and give people a chance not just to kind of read up on a bit of history about the movement or a bit of a primer on, on the political terrain that the debate happens on, but also find out, like, what actually is... What actually is the skinny on how sex work law works in various countries? How does it actually work? What would actually be helpful? Because above all, it's a conversation about how to respond to social issues with law. You know, it's kind of dry. If the conversation is happening properly, then people are talking about things that are both incredibly dramatic, but also kind of dry and boring at the same time. And a lot of people lose patience with that, and they want to take it to, to this place of where it's just talking about sex. It's just talking about sexual violence. You know, those are really key to understanding the debate, but it's also really important to understand, like, what the Swedish model actually looks like or how uh, sex workers are actually in reality being prosecuted in various different courts of law around the world. These aren't things that you can just bullshit on the spot. Although people try their best. Yeah, they,
0: they certainly do. Something <laughs> something that you said that I thought was really smart and really helpful is that that the political debate around sex work is all around diagnostics and trying to uh, yeah. diagnose what is the misunderstanding. Uh, and there's usually mm. more than one misunderstanding that the conversation is even like just by the time it's getting started is predicated on. Can you kind of talk about some strategies for diagnosing what are the misunderstandings, the like fundamental misunderstandings in a lot of sex work debates that we find ourselves in?
2: Yeah. I think a a really key misunderstanding that swallows up a lot of people's time when they're having this debate is they're kind of having an argument about trafficking and not realizing that everybody at the, you know, metaphorical dinner table mm. is defining trafficking differently. Right. Trafficking to one person, you know, they might be having that argument with a certain kind of scenario in mind, like somebody's been kidnapped from their home country in Eastern Europe, um, smuggled into another country against their will, mm. forced on, on threat of violence into uh, having sex with strangers and then having all that money taken away from them and be, basically being kept prisoner. And then another person might be arguing for decriminalizing sex work on the understanding that trafficking is describes a certain kind of economic and migratory flow into a certain country that a migrant may have entered into with a degree of knowledge about what's waiting for them when they get there. And they're basically working in difficult labor conditions on the understanding that they're paying off a debt for their transport Mm. costs and of course there's all manner of realities that fall somewhere in between these two realms and if people don't if people aren't able to be specific if there's a lot of stuff getting collapsed down under the banner of trafficking then how can people really be having a meaningful conversation about how to respond to that phenomenon oftentimes when people are disagreeing about sex worker rights they're not disagreeing that like the you know certain people need to have harms addressed with better laws Mm. but they are disagreeing on like what the problems are and how the problems work and a lot of people come from a place of real ignorance about how trafficking into the sex industry and all kinds of labor trafficking actually happen yeah you know because they don't know any they don't know migrants you know, I think the archetypal dinner party argument is not being had by people who are well-versed in the lives and the and the survival strategies of economic migrants and people who are undocumented. So I think that's how a lot of these disagreements arise. I think if one can, it's good to try and bring some generosity and tolerance to a conversation because nobody ever won an argument about sex worker rights by just (laughs) doubling down doubling down I mean that it happens so much and I I can certainly relate to being in these situations and just feeling so wounded because Mm. it feels like somebody's attacking attacking you on such a deep level yeah when they are describing the sex industry as a violent place and you immediately feel complicit and like like it's partly your fault but that defensiveness is something that I've learned I think over the last few years to kind of learn to sit with a bit and try to hear hear the other person's concerns for what they really are saying Mm. like in terms of you know trying to hear them non-violently when somebody says oh all sex work is rape and we should criminalize it. Try to hear whether or not they're actually maybe expressing uh, some vulnerability as a survivor, mm. or maybe maybe they're just like woefully misinformed. But I think that kind of generosity and like magnanimity is not something that all sex workers are obliged to bring to every conversation. And I think some people can just check out. Yeah, if it's too if it's too fucking annoying, just don't have. Just leave the dinner party. I've definitely left a few dinner parties in my life. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you know that brings up. A topic that I'm excited to talk about with you, which is something that I think that "revolting prostitutes" does a really good job at—the way that you practice calling in as an alternative to calling out, like as in call-out culture. Um, And there was one particular part of the book that I really felt called in that I know that if it was framed in a different way that I might have like gotten defensive about being called out and so I I really I appreciated and and (laughs) it, it, it made me appreciate the strategy of calling in instead of calling out to like be like nothing helps you to like appreciate that more than like when you're the object of it right speaking of that thing of getting defensive. And one of the things that you guys talked about in a very calling into other feminist discourse or uh, other like sex worker rights discourse was a rhetorical strategy that I have used quite a lot. In fact, I used it in an essay that just in in a book that just came out called Believe Me, edited by Jacqueline Friedman and Jessica Valenti. And like a lot of the pull quotes from my essay in that book are this strategy and I had like just read the part of your book that was sort of like complicating that and I was like oh god and now there's these like well-designed memes out there of like me saying this thing (laughs) what that that rhetorical strategy is is saying that sex work is to trafficking as consensual sex is to rape and i'd love to unpack this and just kind of hear from you like in what ways you feel like this analogy is useful and in what ways it is not useful or maybe even potentially like limiting to
2: the discourse firstly i think i think that you shouldn't feel bad for using like whatever rhetorical device feels like useful i think i think this analogy is useful to a certain extent and it's just up to every sex worker activist to make that call whether things like this are useful in every situation or not yeah. um, i think that if you have an anti prostitution advocate kind of describing all sex workers rape right. it is appropriate to make this draw this comparison like w- with trafficking and rape to the extent that everybody gets to decide what does and does not count as violence against their body, that's a yeah. really personal call. Yeah, It's not okay for anybody else to ride in on a white horse and go, uh, I classify what you're doing as rape. And so to that extent, yeah, the sex, people in the sex industry are, you know, it's their prerogative to like clear up that confusion. I do think, however, sometimes the movement is so keen to offer the, uh, offer up this defense, yeah. you know, that sex work isn't like rape and trafficking and sex work are not the same, that maybe the movement forgets that the argument, like the sex worker rights mo- argument isn't about just the individual person and their own experience and their embodied experiences, but it's also about like a huge part of what the sex worker rights movement is fighting is sexual violence and is rape, is forced working conditions and it. I think if you're it sounds like the context that you were using it in isn't isn't inappropriate if we're talking about how we politically defend our right to decide whether or not our experience is classified as rape or not yeah it's not however I guess helpful in the situations where we seek to like draw attention to the experience of people who are being exploited in the sex industry and like right. for me personally like I'm I'm all about counter counteracting like violent assertions that are made on my behalf about my body as a sex working individual yeah like i won't have i won't have somebody describe my all of my work as rape because as a survivor it's my choice to define i, I and I, I very much need to be able to disambiguate between my experiences that are violent and the ones that are just work. Right. But also at the same time, like, I'm definitely out here like, also trying to draw attention to working conditions that are exploitative mm. um, and the ways in which the sex industrial complex makes it very easy for rapists to target sex workers. I'm also out here like, trying to show solidarity with sex workers, people who are selling sex, who, who might themselves define all of the work they're doing as rape. Like, yeah. There are some people who feel that way, but they still deserve rights a yeah, conversation about sure. rights
0: still benefits them.
2: Yeah, it it definitely does. And I think I can see this is why we try to be compassionate in the book. And I think even like for me and Molly, we've also been at a place where we were desperate to kind of try and push the whole trafficking thing a little bit further away and say oh no that's not the same like we're at we want to talk about stigma against sex workers who've chosen what they're doing it's not fair to like slur us by claiming that we're all rape victims and like it's just eventually we came to realize that if it's not about solidarity with the people who for whom that is an accurate description then it's really kind of maybe a bit self-serving, like it's, it's, it's good to be versatile (laughs) with your, (laughs) like with your politics. It's, and I, sex work is very much a political topic where you have this like individual relationship with the politics in as much Mm. as it's very embodied, but we also all have to have this like broader structural understanding. Like I, as a sex worker, I might go down the street and get called a fucking whore, or I might have a client do something disgusting in a session and that is part of this incredibly broad tapestry of oppression. And somewhere else on that same tapestry is the reality that some people are being forced into sex work on a daily basis. They're at risk of deportation, incarceration, um, elsewhere, like in the Global South, some sex workers are like shot for participating in political speech. Like, there's, there's so much going on and, and we all have to do our bit to recognize that it might feel like it's all about the particular oppression that we experience. Mm. like the intellectual or like epistemological violence that we experience. But it's it's super, it's super broad and it's super complex. Um, and also as a privileged sex worker, like the op- oppressions that affect the most privileged sex workers are usually really not the same. They don't look the same as the oppressions that are affecting the people who don't get to have a voice a lot of the time.
0: There is potential for this analogy, this sex work is to trafficking as consensual sex is to rape analogy to simplify things so much that it also creates it's like a slippery slope from an a useful analogy to a limiting binary because then it's it's othering right it's saying like I'm not a trafficking victim I choose this and like we were talking about before, then it can also become a like, no, I'm doing this because I love it, because I love sex, because I'm empowered, because I'm happy hooker. And then all of a sudden that becomes like something that is necessary for you to say in order to be deserving of rights. Well, then simultaneously being expected to other people who may either be victims of trafficking of exploitation of coercion or even that like gray area of being in a situation where your choices are so limited that i mean i don't even want to say like so limited many of us have a limited choice and therefore choose sex work but the context of the limited choice does not it should not mean that we have to demonstrate that It was an active choice in order to be deserving of these rights that we are talking about and the rights that you talk about in revolting prostitutes.
2: Yeah, I think I I mean, for me, the term choice, I don't know about about you, but I found I found that over the years, the word choice has just gotten more and more and more baggage attached to it. So. These days, these days I tend to talk about decisions, like sex workers make decisions mm. as part of their survival strategies. Everybody makes survival strategies. It just varies whether or not people are very close to, you know, the, the bread line or not. And I think yeah. if you're in a, a debate arena and you're t- tempted to make a comeback that includes this kind of rhetoric, like sex workers not trafficking, I think it's useful to kind of... Uh, like ask yourself what is it about the conversation that's put you in that place where you have to make that kind of defense mm. it's usually like it's usually a sign that it's not a safe conversation for one this yeah why I'm, I'm super compassionate for sex workers who find themselves making this argument because it's usually not a safe conversation that forces somebody to make that retort and also like it's very rarely necessary to make that kind of retort to somebody. Like if somebody's come out of the gate to say, the only way we can stamp out sex work is by curbing demand, or there's no safe society in which men can still purchase women's bodies. We can counter all of these kinds of things without trying to push away the reality that the sex industry is a site of colonialism, racism, misogyny, like it, it, there's no point denying it if we also as sex worker activists seek to fight those problems. And it's very Pollyanna of me. And I don't think it's ever going to really work out like this. But I would love to at least proceed on the understanding that sex worker activists and anti-prostitution feminists have the same goal. Mm. We just disagree on the ways to navigate and like reach that, reach that goal. It's never going to really work out that we all can all sit down together and, and work alongside one another. But I have to keep moving forward as if it's possible because it's the only strategy that keeps my political integrity in place, if that makes sense. You know, like, and it stops me feeling so defensive. What is that goal that you think that we share? I mean, it's funny because I think the the coronavirus brought into focus what that goal is for me personally as an activist more than ever. And it is to create a bigger buffer around the people who are most exposed to violence mm. and the the violence comes in through the doors of like economic privation, poor provision for mental and physical health care. I think the the crisis has really laid bare how, how, how close to death some people are, frankly, like how, how close to complete crisis. And I think, we you know, through the work we've, I've been doing with Swarm lately, we've been operating a hardship fund so people can apply to the hardship fund if the crisis has left them without any income which obviously you know that accounts for so many people right now and yeah. we can give them a 200 pound grant you know we can pay 200 pounds directly into their bank account it it just requires a short conversation on the phone with us so through doing that i've spoken to hundreds of people in the last few weeks who are very much like on the edge and these people are the focus, these are the people who are like, quote unquote, hard to reach. These are the voiceless people. Mm. These are the people who are actually the focus of everybody's feminism, whether or not they realize it, whether or not they ever spoken to or met these people. And I would love to see the anti-prostitution movement realizing, even reluctantly realizing, that the Swedish model that they're pushing for in Europe, uh, and I know that there's a lot of American feminists who are also pushing for the Swedish model as if it's gonna correct all of the problems of the American system. But, Mm. like, taking away somebody's income can never be done gently. You can never correct somebody's destitution Mm. in a benevolent way. You can never, like, just gently starve them of income until they come to their senses. All that happens is that people get more and more exposed to danger. And I would just, I just wish that anti-prostitution feminists would take their foot off the pedal pushing for more criminalization. If they could just see how harm, like, this, this crisis has showed us exactly what end demand looks like. Yeah. It's kind of given us it's given us a a, a beta test almost of what end demand would look like. And it's seriously dangerous. It's it's lethal. So I have high hopes that after all this is over, will like some data will get collected about what this period of time was actually like for sex workers who are living on the breadline but I uh, know as I said I can be a bit Pollyanna sometimes about these things well this is a safe space for Pollyannas and
0: <laughs> and it is it's it's morbid to think about how there's data that can be collected right now that could never be ethically yes
2: yes Created
0: in like a like a social science study. Yeah,
2: for sure. You
0: can't ethically create the control groups that the virus is creating right now. But but that is also the reality and
2: sometimes yeah. But I thought that about foster Sester, you know, I really thought that in the year following Sester we were gonna have so many people eating their words and like clamoring to backtrack on the obvious harms done by taking away thousands of people's hundreds of thousands of people's internet like lifelines and yet it's been so difficult to foreground the effects of Cester. and I worry that this whole crisis it doesn't even right now you've got feminist organizations in Europe describing the coronavirus as the Oh, it abolitionist, was the abolitionist virus! virus. Oh, God! No, and it's it's so frustrating to me because it's like there's so much ego involved in being an activist. Yeah, like everybody, and and this is like this is like a human sickness that we all have <laughs> to kind of grapple with on a day to day basis. But and I, I say this as an activist, mm. and I notice it in myself. It's like a constant reckoning with your desire to make your politics all about you as a person (laughs) as if that's in any way important and i i like to think that i like grapple with it and uh at least at least keep it in the forefront of my mind like that my politics are not all about myself Mm. i wish i i saw more of that from anti-prostitution feminists but it does often feel like you're just looking at a great big ego stroking exercise